0: The wonderful thing about having founding fathers, or really any kind of founders at all, is that we can ascribe to them all sorts of ideas. This works especially well when they're dead. Live people are really annoying in their tendency to kind of pop up and say, oh, I didn't really mean that. When they're dead, you know, much easier. So we ethical culturists are double lucky. We have national founding fathers who are dead that we can ascribe things to, and we have our own religious founder, Felix Adler. We'll talk, he's also dead. We'll talk a little bit more about that founder, Felix Adler, later. Unfortunately, many of his speeches were recorded or transcribed, so we have a little less leeway on making things up about him but it is practically a national pastime to make things up about America's founding fathers or to find, in their words, whatever it is that we hope to say to others. Depending on whom you ask, the founding fathers were highly religious and specifically Christian, probably evangelical, or basically not at all religious and secretly humanists. They supported the right for every single person to carry a gun at all times, or they really only meant that if the country was being invaded by Uzi-wielding aliens. They would have definitely supported marriage equality if they had only known because they really believed in equality for all, or they would have thought it was a terrible idea because they felt so strongly about traditional families. You get the picture. It is so easy to paint pictures of our ancestors and have them look just like us. Or how we wish the world around us looked. So, what did our national founding fathers really believe about religion, more importantly, about democracy? Unitarians and Universalists like to claim at least some of the founding fathers. And there's some reason to do so. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, in particular, were identified as Unitarian. Jefferson famously didn't belong to any Unitarian congregation, but that's because there was none nearby. And he wrote in a letter that has been, um, uh, I think... Um, dipped in gold by Unitarians everywhere, something along the lines of, I will be a Unitarian by myself, since he had no congregation to join. So that's the, the big indication that he really was Unitarian at heart. Maybe he wouldn't have gone to the congregation if it was near him. We don't know. Jefferson is especially important as we think about freedom of religion because, as you may know, it was Thomas Jefferson's Virginia Act of Freedom of Religion, which he authored and was really the architect of, that was the model for the freedom of religion that came into the American Constitution and that we know today. Jefferson also is famous for the Jefferson Bible. Have any of you read that or do you know about the Jefferson Bible? Um, Where he took out, excised the miracles, really, anything miraculous in nature, to create a kind of human portrait of Jesus' life and the work that Jesus did in teaching and preaching around the world. So we know that little bit about the religious lives of at least those two founding fathers, and the others were all over the map. You can go online and find out which ones were Episcopalian and which ones were Deist and which ones were Presbyterian and which ones were Universalists. That doesn't necessarily tell us exactly what they believed deep in their hearts. We do know from the point of view of democracy that they believed in the voice of the people, but that they believed in that voice coming through in multiple ways. We, of course, talk about the three branches of government in America. And we know that in America, we almost always practice representative democracy rather than direct democracy. One of the key um, uh, times when we do have direct democracy is through referendums at the state level. What about ethical culture's founder, Felix Adler? Born in in, uh, the mid-19th century, founding ethical culture in 1876, and then he died in 1933, what did Adler think about voting? Some of what we know Adler thought comes about from his work and writing on the voting rights for women, That's where, unfortunately, we're not quite able to ascribe to him exactly what we might hope for our founder. Adler did not support a woman's right to vote, although he engaged in the conversation, was close with many uh, suffragists, and worked within the kind of milieu that they worked. I think in some ways, what he thought about women voting had less to do with women, although there's an interesting sidebar about Felix Adler and women, and he was a man of his time, but more about the voting process writ large. I at least want to give him the benefit of the doubt there. And indeed, here is what he said in one of his speeches about women's suffrage before women's suffrage passed, so as the, as the question was being debated in America. He uh, spoke to an unusually full uh, Carnegie Hall. It's reported in the New York Times. And, um, and invited many key women suffragists to be there and to, to engage with him in the conversation, and he wrote this. I quote, The ballot in the hands of men is not doing what it should, and I would not like to have the evil we now suffer increased by millions and millions of voters unprepared to exercise suffrage. Things are not what they seem. We might say that if votes for men do not work as they should, why men should cease to vote. As a matter of fact, many men have. A very bad government is better than none, but that is no reason for making it worse, end quote. Kind of a depressing view of voting (laughs) in the democratic process, really. And and he's making the argument there that women shouldn't get the right to vote because men have done so poorly with it that women are unlikely to come and better the institution. And so I think you can read in there that maybe nobody should vote, that we're doing a terrible job running our country through voting. But that's not all Adler thought, of course. He worked and spoke and lived for many years. And, um, and so I have another somewhat um, alternative view of voting, I think. From a letter to the editor that he wrote to the New York Times in no- on November 1, 1916, right before election day of that year, an election for the president of the United States, whom he refers to, as was common in the time, as the chief magistrate, He writes, To join in the election of the chief magistrate of the United States is to perform an act of great and solemn responsibility. The citizen who performs this act should be able to justify it to his conscience and should be guided not by whim, nor self-interest, nor passion, but by principles. The citizen in a free commonwealth is required to act as a sovereign ideally should, that is, to shape his actions at all times so as to promote the good of the whole people, end quote. So I think you can see there that he really does take seriously the idea of voting. And perhaps it's because he takes it so seriously, because he feels that, that our our right to vote is really that of a sovereign, right, that we have to hold within our understanding when we vote the needs of the entire country, that he later expresses such disappointment that we're not doing it very well. You know, he's, he's holding up the importance of democracy and the importance of the individual voice and the individual vote in democracy, even as he bemoans the fact that it doesn't always work the way we would like it to. Which brings me to one of the first things I want to to look at here, the idea that it's not just voting that allows us to influence democracy, that there are other ways to have a voice in the democratic process in America, ways that are perhaps even more powerful. And really one of those ways is social protest, social protest as a way of influencing the course of the country. During the meditation this morning, Marty asked you to imagine being in the midst of a protest yourself. And I'm always curious when you imagine something like that, if you imagine that you're part of the protesters or part of the loyal opposition, what do you think about the folks joined together in protest, whether they're the Tea Party movement or the occupiers? Can you tell the difference at first At first brush, do you read the signs to see? Are there similarities between the two? We tend to think, I think, that at least one of those movements is a total disaster. Usually not both, but one, certainly. And if we think one, then we think the other, maybe is a really great idea. But the truth is that what we complain about, about either of the movements, could potentially be ascribed to both or to neither. Oh, those fill in the blank here. They're just belly aching. They don't have any plan. What are they doing? Which one did you fill in in that blank? Well, that idea of social protest, I've been thinking about that, about the the effectiveness of social protest, the importance of social protest, particularly after reading an article in the New York Times by Adam Davidson that was sent to me by an Alert West member. Please do. I love it when you send those to me, and frequently they show up in my platforms. It was about a new book called Why Nations Fail, an economics book, really, by Darren Asimoglu and James Robinson. And the basic idea of the book, as summarized and put forward in this article in the New York Times, is, is that similar nations, nations with very similar resources, similar locations in the globe even, succeed or fail, right? And, and, and it's been the work of economists for centuries to figure out why, why one with the same rich resources as the other fails and the other one has succeeded so wildly economically, well, what this new book is positing is that the success or failure is based in large part on the extent to which the average person in the country is involved with the economy and with decision making, the extent to which they feel empowered and enfranchised within their country. One of the um, indi- one of the indications or one of the countries held up uh, that fails um, is Haiti, a country rich in resources in many ways, but also rich in inequality and rich in corruption. And the idea put forth by this book is, you know, going, the, the, one of the authors goes to Haiti and visits with somebody who has a gorgeous piece of land but has planted only one tree that grows the particular crop that they're growing, really kind of a subsistence level of planting. One or two trees. And so they're asked, well, why? you know, you have all this land. You have It's beautiful. It's fertile. Why didn't you plant more? Well, people will just come and steal more if I plant more. You know, the government won't protect it. The government is corrupt. So why would I bother planting more? It's the idea that if you as an individual person don't feel empowered within the system to create wealth, to participate in, in the economy, to participate in the democratic process— you won't bother, and ultimately the entire economy will begin to collapse. So it goes through, this article goes through all of these countries with really cute little cartoons of, of you know, sort of the happy Dominican Republican, the sad Haiti, sharing one island and, you know, little all countries as cartoons, I think as possibly why I was most um, attracted to it, kind of a nice visual. Uh, anyway, it goes through with lots of also important economic language that doesn't have to do with cartoons, and, uh, and ends up wondering about America. As we know, America has a growing inequality. Um, we're now more unequal in terms of wealth than we have been for many years, and it seems to be getting worse and worse. And so the author asked the question, is America going to go the way of these countries that failed? and pointed, and and here's the interesting idea for me, pointed toward recent social protest movements, both the Tea Party movement, and the Occupy movement as indications that the average American continues to feel that they can influence the system, that they have a voice in some way. Even though both of those movements speak out of a place of disenfranchisement, the very fact of their existence shows that people feel that gathering together in protest, raising our voices, has the potential to change how our country looks. If we didn't think it had the potential, we wouldn't bother gathering, right? And so the author of this article, drawing on the authors of the work of the authors of this book, thinks that America will continue to work as a country so long as individual Americans feel that they have the potential to change the system, whether through voting or through protest. What happens then if we don't think that anymore? That's always the real concern. What happens when the majority of our people do feel disenfranchised, out of the economic system, out of the political system, with no hope for becoming an inside person again? Well, what happens to folks who are completely disenfranchised now? I'm speaking today on April 15th, which is, of course, Tax Day in America, and I'm joining congregations all over the District of Columbia who are talking about D.C. voting rights, or lack thereof. Those of you who were here last year heard a whole platform about D.C. voting rights, and I I won't um, repeat it here. If you missed it, it was fabulous, and you'll want to listen to it online, I'm sure. But essentially, residents of the District of Columbia have no voting representation in Congress or the House. They have one uh, congressperson, Eleanor, uh, Congress, in House or Senate. They have one um, representative, Eleanor Holmes Norton, who has a voice but no vote in the House, and uh, they can now, this is actually new, In the in, was not always true for district residents, they can vote in presidential elections. Can you imagine there was a time when they actually couldn't vote in presidential elections? They can vote in presidential elections, but D.C. still doesn't have autonomy over its own budget. Its budget is made by D.C., but then approved by Congress, which means that all sorts of crazy riders go on there, disallowing D.C. from spending its own taxpayer-raised money on programs that it feels would serve its citizens. But not just, I think, voting representation disenfranchises D.C. folks. D.C. is actually, and the, and the greater Washington area, is one of the places with the worst income inequality of anywhere in the country. And in parts of the district especially, There's a sense of hopelessness around economic opportunity. Ward 8 has 40% unemployment. Can you imagine 40% unemployment right here in the district where if you travel just a little tiny bit, you cannot buy a home for less than $2 million. So that kind of economic inequality, the hopelessness that it brings, combined with the lack of voting representation... I think there is in the District of Columbia, particularly among long-time residents and particularly among those who are multi-generational and who have a lack of mobility because of economic circumstances, a sense of disenfranchisement, a sense of hopelessness that, that means that they don't participate in the active life of their city. You know, D.C. gets a lot of flack for corruption in the government, and, and that's a problem. You don't have to read very far in the Washington Post to notice that there seems to be an awful lot of corruption. I'm not sure that you'd find that there's zero corruption in some of the states, but that's okay. And, and frequently people will say, well, you know, why aren't D.C. folks out there working against corruption in their, go- in their government? Why do they allow that? And I would argue that they feel the same kind of disenfranchisement that the person in Haiti feels, the same reason that you don't plant more trees, you don't show up for protesting uh, government corruption, you don't even show up to protest your lack of a voting uh, representation. You know, people will say, "Well, why are why aren't all the citizens of the District of Columbia out there protesting?" I think, in the same way, if you haven't ever had voting representation, and your parents didn't, and your grandparents didn't, and your great grandparents didn't, why would you bother trying to get it? So, what do we need? to get that kind of voting representation. How do we work toward the enfranchisement of DC residents, the enfranchisement of people who feel disenfranchised all around the country? the people who have joined in Occupy protests across the nation because they feel cut out from the economic possibilities in America, people who have joined in Tea Party protests, people who see that something is wrong, whether we agree with what they think is wrong or not. How do we bring those people together in a way that creates positive change in America? Is voting the answer or is protest the answer? I would argue that it's a little bit of both. That democracy in America is influenced by so many different kinds of voices. And I want to tease that out just a little bit. Sometimes democracy is influenced by the media, particularly in an age of social media when movements can catch fire. We've seen even just this past week, as there's been a national outcry over the the weeks prior around Trayvon Martin's killing, we've seen movement there. We've seen people wrestling with those ideas, wrestling with what's right and what's wrong. And we've seen folks in Florida come forward for a trial. Obviously, we don't know. What, what will happen then, but we see the possibility for evidence to be shown somewhere other than C-SPAN, to evidence to be shown within the system of the jury, uh, the jury and judge system in America and the possibility that justice will be done. Change often happens slowly, incrementally in America as all of these different ways of influencing the democratic system start to bubble up around the country. Sometimes Voting does make huge changes in America. And that's one reason to work for voting rights in the District of Columbia. Both legislative voting, as we've seen with the Equal Rights Amendment historically, and with health care, huge changes in the country brought about by legislative bodies, and also, too, with direct voting at the state level in particular. Maryland will have two referendum pieces coming up this November, both the DREAM Act, which, which uh, is involved with immigrant education in particular in Maryland, and marriage equality recently passed legislatively in Maryland, which goes to a direct vote referendum in November. And this congregation will have an opportunity to be engaged in that conversation and engaged in some of the work around getting out the vote for particularly the referendum on marriage equality. So there is the importance of individual votes at time, at times. And I think that that's especially important now as America is in a time of um, uh, high corporate lobbying, high corporate voices. I, I don't agree with the, with the recent ruling, not so recent now, that corporations are people and have the same rights as people. But I do believe that corporations are made up of people, just like any group, there are people organized together, people organized with money. And so what I would say, our answer to that kind of organization is to organize ourselves, to make sure that our voices are organized, our voices are there, both in forms of protest, in social media campaigns, and also in voting. I, I was at a Washington Interfaith Network clergy meeting recently. That's the coalition of congregations in the D.C. area, an interfaith coalition that works on district um, uh, district priorities for neighborhoods in the district, particularly around affordable housing, around jobs and education, around youth and rec centers. At that meeting, they were talking about the possibility of a voter campaign, voter registration, voter turnout. And... Uh, and one of the lead organizers said something that just really spoke to me. The idea that voting is an irrational act alone. One vote rarely makes a difference. And we can see why, just as Felix Adler said so many years ago, many men, many women have given up voting. They've decided it doesn't work. They won't bother. It's an irrational act alone, but it is a rational act when done in a group. It's a rational act when we vote in blocks when we vote together and turn out votes together around issues that we value issues that are important to us and to the people that we care about it's because of that possibility of voting i think that we work to enfranchise people because of that that i invite this congregation to support dc voting rights that i invite the congregation to support voting turnout in in D.C. and voting turnout around what's really important to residents of the city. You have a chance to do that very particularly today around D.C. voting rights, and I just want to let you know there's a card in the lobby, both at the welcome table and at the little round table as you come in, inviting you to a lobby day on Tuesday for D.C. voting rights. So pick that up, take a look, see what you think, and I invite you to join us. Joe London will be there that day working and lobbying for voting rights. The point, I think, is, is enfranchisement of self and others, including those we disagree with. Whichever protest movement you didn't think you wanted to be part of, that protest movement's voice is also important in the direction of our country. The ability of each person to have a voice to feel as though their voice matters is integral to the continued success of our nation. Winston Churchill famously said that democracy is the worst form of government except for any other form of government. It is certainly a messy form. Sometimes totalitarianism just seems kind of nice and neat. Democracy allows for all these kinds of voices and all sorts of different ways for voices to pop in there. Voting, protests, the dreaded lobbying. But in the end, all of those voices are are people's voices. Saul Alinsky, the grandfather of community organizing in America, who has gotten the most press recently from Republican presidential candidates talking about how terrible he was, which is actually kind of a a bonus, I think, maybe has made people look him up. Saul Alinsky said that power was organized people and organized money. They've got the money, he said, but we've got the people. And we do have the people. Or rather, we are the people, if we want to be. If we want to do voter registration and voter turnout, if we want to lobby Congress for D.C. voting rights, if we want to phone bank for marriage equality in Maryland, if we want to educate voters in the district about the issues that are important to us, if we care enough to raise our voices, As some of you may have noticed, I have a little addiction to protests and rallies. I just think they're so much fun. Conveniently, my four-year-old daughter agrees with me, and whenever I suggest that we're going to a march or a rally, she jumps up and down and says, A march, a march, a march! (laughs) Even when marches and rallies and protests get messy which they often do when you find that the message you thought you came with is subsumed in someone else's message or when it occurs to you that the people that you're marching with aren't necessarily using the language that you would prefer for their chant. But you know what chant I like best every time? I bet you've heard it. This is what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like. Because this is what democracy looks like. People finding ways to have their voices heard, imperfectly. That chant could apply to any protest movement, including the ones that I don't agree with, to any voting bloc, to any group of people lobbying for what they believe in. This is what democracy looks like. Whether or not the Founding Fathers would have recognized it, it is ours now to shape the world we hope to see.